You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. Welcome to you if you came in a little late this morning. It's really good to see you. Uh, my name is Al. Uh, I'm one of the leaders here. I'm going to be speaking to you this morning from the final piece of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we've been working through this, uh, this prayer that Jesus gave the church to pray. Uh, it's been part of our season of 100 days of prayer. I've lost count. Anyone know off the top of their head where we are? No. Deep in, I think, is the answer. So we've been praying 100 days of prayer, we're somewhere along the lines, and we've been looking at the Lord's Prayer to begin with because, well, what a better place to start 100 days of prayer by considering a prayer that Jesus said, pray like this. I mean, it's pretty profound stuff, isn't it? Um, So that's what we've been doing, and today is the very last session of it. And as I said earlier on, I trust that this scripture, this series has been beneficial for you. Trust that God has been working in your life through it, that you've been encouraged, built up, that you've seen angles and things on this prayer that's so, so familiar in Christian life. In fact, one of those texts that can become probably too familiar, that we lose a little bit of a sense of the edge of it, the the radical nature of it, as with everything that is related to Jesus. And so hopefully in this last session today, as we wrap up the Lord's series on the Lord's Prayer, uh, you will get a sense of God again breathing into your heart and your mind and your life. Now let me just repeat again what we've been saying every single week, Uh, and repetition is key to good teaching. Uh, If you could just say something once and that was it, then there'd be no need for any teaching, and we'd all be much the wiser and much the more sensible, but teaching involves repetition. And so week upon week, we've been saying that the Lord's Prayer can't be understood adequately unless we see that it's all related to the person, work, and words of Jesus, who he is, what he did, what he said. And the Gospels themselves, of which, of course, the Lord's Prayer belongs in uh, the Gospels, show us that the person in the person of Jesus, the kingdom of God, the reign of God has come near. It has appeared. It has been launched, if you like. Jesus came into the world as God's Messiah. Messiah means king or anointed one. He came into the world as the king of Israel. And Israel's scriptures, the the text that we call the Old Testament, um, that's a kind of conversation for another day probably why, uh, Israel's scriptures pointed to a greater reality though. Israel's Messiah would be for Israel, but also for the whole world. That the coming of Messiah would be good news for all peoples. And the Gospels show us in numerous ways that Jesus is more than a simply human king. He is, in fact, the embodiment of the God of Israel. He is the one who, in the flesh, is Yahweh, embodied. He is the one who is the word through whom all things were made to whom all things owe their allegiance and by whom all things have their existence. He is the sole ruler and the sole creator sharing in the very identity of the one God. He is profoundly important. He is God 
and King. He is Messiah and Lord. And the two things cohere and hold together in this one man, Jesus. That's part of what you have to understand if you're going to really get to grips with what the Lord's Prayer is all about and what it's referring to. Now, okay, of course you can have a quiet time and you can recite the Lord's Prayer and that's really, really good. That's excellent, in fact. One of the translations, one of the Gospels, Jesus says, recite this. Literally, that's what it means. Recite it, say it as it is. You can take it and you can improvise around it. You can bounce off the different clauses. That's good as well. But you need to understand the depths, the riches, the person of Jesus, what his whole person and mission is about if we're going to really get into the rich juiciness of the Lord's Prayer. And so it doesn't just become a piece of Christian piety. So we come to this last phrase then. For the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours forever. Amen. And it's not really a request, is it? It's funny that the Lord's Prayer doesn't really end with a prayer. It ends with doxology, an expression of praise and worship. We've done this already this morning. Paul has led us magnificently in doxological statements Glory statements, worshipping our king, making much of who he is. And the Lord's Prayer ends on a note of doxology. It ends in a statement of praise and gladness in God. And so this morning I'm going to just tease out some of the depths of this last phrase and explore what it might mean for us in the light of all that I've said about Jesus and how we should understand this prayer. Let's begin by thinking about kingdoms and kings. We could say that power and glory are the marks of great kingdoms, yeah? The more powerful and the more glorious a kingdom is, the greater that kingdom is. So I've mentioned the Old Testament. Let's think about an Old Testament kingdom for a moment. Let's think about Solomon. If you're not a Christian, Solomon was the son of David, who was essentially Israel's greatest king. But the fullness of David's kingdom, if you like, didn't really get seen in the Old Testament until Solomon appeared and built a temple. And his kingdom was so great that rulers of other nations traveled to Jerusalem to request the wisdom of Solomon and marveled at the wonder and the glory and the splendor of his kingdom. Slightly further on, the time of Jesus The Roman Empire stretched from Gibraltar to Jerusalem and from Britain to the Black Sea. Rome was glorious and powerful. Rome was the eternal city. Or closer to home, you may know these words of Arthur Benson's that were put to music by Elgar. Land of hope and glory, mother of the free, how shall we extol thee who are born of thee? Wider still and wider shall thy bounds be set, God who made thee mighty, make thee mightier yet. Anyone got a Union Jack to wave around this morning? I hope not. Of course, land of hope and glory is now deeply controversial. 
because of its association with colonialism and slavery. This sermon is not really about colonialism and slavery and the evils of that, although, of course, there is much that we could say. But highlighting something like this does serve to highlight a significant problem with the way that power and glory work in human kingdoms, and that is that there's always a dark side to it. Solomon's kingdom was built on the slave labor of his own people. Did you know that? You can read about that in 1 Kings when it describes Solomon's kingdom. He conscripted forced labor from the Israelites. And so there is a profound irony in this great king and a great kingdom that the people who built the great kingdom were Israelites who had been slaves in Egypt and whom God had rescued from slavery. And now they were being forced into slavery to build a temple and to build a palace and to build a kingdom. Solomon's kingdom was also built on a booming military trade with Egypt. That was something that Moses, in the law, had expressly forbidden Israelite kings to do. So for all the glory of Solomon's kingdom, a a glory which you could say arguably was from God, there is also a downside and a dark side because Solomon's kingdom was built by slightly inappropriate means, perhaps. Rome, of course, we all know about the Roman Empire. Rome brought peace to the world, the Pax Romana. But it was a peace that came at a cost. Conquered peoples had to pay hefty tribute for the maintenance of that peace under threat of brutal reprisals if you were thinking of changing your mind. So with great kingdoms, with great power, and with great glory, when those things are merely human things, there is always something of a dark side. So, what should we make of kingdom, power, and glory when they are found on the lips of Jesus? Well, it might have to do with how you see Jesus. If Jesus is just another religious leader, then you might have a particular view of that. If you receive and confess Jesus in the way that he's already been talked about this morning, then you might have a different view of it. It's actually a vital question for us in today's world where religious power is viewed with extreme skepticism and cynicism. It's a vital question for Christian communities of all types who would seek to model their personal and communal lives on Jesus. And it's a vital question for the church as a witness to the kingdom of God. I think what you have to understand when it comes to thinking about what Jesus might mean by kingdom, power, and glory, is that Jesus utterly subverts every human notion of how kingdom, power, and glory belong together. Gillian's already spoken this morning, prophesying to us about a God who is power and love, and how it's very different to speak about those things when we're speaking about God. 
And so when we think about the kingdom and the power and the glory, it should probably be no surprise to discover that they are construed in radically different ways when they are referred to Jesus and to his model of kingdom, power, and glory, or God's way of doing kingdom, power, and glory. So I want to show you how this works this morning. I don't want to just talk about it. Well, what do we make of it? Well, it's up to you. Choose your own adventure. Whatever you think is true, well, that would be ridiculous. How does Jesus, how does Scripture show us how kingdom power and glory hold together in the person of Jesus? To do that, I'm going to turn to our favorite gospel at York City Church, which is Mark. As you all knew already, and as is often said, other gospels are available. But today we're going to be looking at a few verses from Mark before we circle back and reflect on the final phrase of the Lord's Prayer. I mean, there are actually dozens of different examples that I could have picked this morning to to show you kingdom power and glory at work, but this one's particularly apt, I think, as hopefully you will see. So we're going to look, first of all, at Mark chapter 10, verses 33 to 34. Jesus says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. In this moment, we're right in the middle of this movement where Jesus has just blown the minds of his disciples by saying, I'm going to suffer and die, guys. He's had to rebuke his friend Peter because Peter does not have his mind on the things of God. He's thinking about kingdoms that are powerful with a sword and military. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to go and die in Jerusalem. And Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. And then as they're on the road to Jerusalem, three times Jesus predicts his sufferings and his death. This is the third one, the final one. And we find Jesus walking ahead of his disciples. He's not somewhere back up in Galilee ordering people around from a palace. He is there walking down, down, down the descent towards Jerusalem before rising up again into the city where he will be crucified. The disciples do not understand what is going on. But Jesus very much does. In the very next verse, two disciples who are brothers approach Jesus. They say, "Teacher, we want you to that's uh, supposed to say we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory." Well, Jesus tells them that they don't know what they are asking for. They don't get the nature of Jesus' unique destiny. And so he says to them, to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now if you understand what James and John are asking Jesus for, you will be able to understand what they think about kingdom, power, and glory. 
James and John assume that Jesus is going into Jerusalem to be crowned as king. And well, honestly speaking, they're correct. But how that is going to happen is not what they are anticipating at all. James and John are making a play to share in Jesus' power and glory by asking if they can be joint second in command, sitting at his left and his right when he comes into his glory. But by asking for that privilege, they've shown themselves to be mistaken about the nature of kingdom, power, and glory as those things relate to Jesus. Jesus has to tell them, that what they have asked for is actually outside of his control because it's been reserved and the implication is by God for those for whom it has been prepared. So that sets the scene a little bit. And Mark 15 then tells us exactly who it is that it has been prepared for. We read this. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified Jesus The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two bandits, one on his right and one on his left. And in this one devastating scene, the true meaning of kingdom, power and glory all come together in the moment of Jesus' crucifixion. Crucifixion was reserved by the Romans for those who dared to challenge imperial power, for insurrectionists, bandits, those who perpetrated violence against the state. But the irony is the mocking mocking sign calling Jesus the king of the Jews is actually true albeit Jesus did not come as an insurrectionist, at least not in the terms set by imperial Rome. Jesus' coronation, because that is what this is, signals the victory of God over all rival powers, human, demonic, or otherwise. The rule or kingdom of God has been established not by swords or by guns or by bombs, but by the self-giving love and obedience of the Messiah, Jesus. And do you remember what James and John wanted to do when Jesus came into his glory? Grant for us that we may sit, one at your left hand and one at your right when you come into your glory. And what do we find in this text? One at his left and one at his right. It's not James and John, but it signals the fact that this is the moment when Jesus comes into his glory. This is the moment when Messiah Jesus is crowned king. This is when he is lifted up from the earth This is where he is shown to be who he truly is. This is where the true identity of God is most clearly, shockingly, and radically revealed for all to see. This is where kingdom, power, and glory meet. In the bloodied, 
and beaten body of a crucified, rejected, and mocked Jew. This glory is not a glory gained at the expense of lives that have been trampled over or subjugated by violent means. It's not the kind of kingdom that Jesus establishes. It's not the kind of king that Jesus is. This is a glory that has been received by Jesus as the result of his obedience to the Father. No one forced Jesus to it. No one had his arm behind his back on the road. Oh, go on then. Oh, there wasn't a small band of Jerusalem of disciples acting as a pressure group. Now, come on, Jesus. If you don't do this, we're going to tell everybody all your dirty secrets. There were none. There were no dirty. There were no political games. There was no skeletons in Jesus' closet. It was all out in the open anyway. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't that on his brothers, James and Joseph? Don't we know his family? Everybody knew. Well, who is this guy anyway? But they didn't know. He's Joseph's son. No, he's not. Well, yes, he is, but no, he's also God's son, the king, the son of God. Jesus' glory is a suffering glory that undermines every single human attempt at grasping and seizing glory by showing what true glory looks like. If we could talk about another gospel for a moment, because they do exist and they are actually Holy Scripture, believe it or not. We have read, mark, learn in York City Church. We're going to maybe go for Luke, listen and think. See? Up here for thinking, down there for dancing. Know what I mean, John? Ugh. If anyone can think of a good one for Matthew, then you know, let me know. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is risen from the dead and he's walking on the Emmaus Road with Cleopas and another disciple. We don't know the other disciple's name. And they're confused because they know all the facts. It's quite a lot like a lot of Christians, actually. They, they know all the facts, but they're confused. <laughs> Hands up if that's you. <laughs> no need. Well, it's all of us. They, they know all the facts, but they're confused. And Jesus has to say, look, you're so slow to understand, which goes to show that knowing and understanding are not the same thing. Okay? Just a little aside. Knowing stuff, great. Understanding, harder to come by. Okay? They know, but they don't understand. And Jesus has to say, didn't you realize from the scriptures that the Messiah must suffer and enter his glory? Now, a lot of times the English translations of that text make it sound like that he suffers first and then later on he enters into his glory because it's, it's sequential, isn't it? Suffer and then enter into glory. Boo-hoo-hoo, hooray, or something like that. That's my version. It's not a very good version. But the Greek doesn't actually say that. And I won't bore you with what the words are, but it literally says, suffer and enter glory. It's not and then, it's suffer and glory. Suffering and glory are together in Jesus. It's not that he has to suffer for a bit and then he gets glory afterwards, although he does also get glory afterwards. His glory is his suffering, and his suffering is his glory. And what you see, if you track back from Emmaus through Luke a little bit, into the whole kind of crucifixion build-up, you will see Jesus caring for his friend, Peter, when Peter denies him in the courtyard as Jesus is being 
like questioned on sort of a kangaroo court, really. And, and the cock crows, and Peter's like, oh no. And Jesus looks at him. Jesus remembers his friend in the depths of his own pain. As he is being taken off to be crucified, the women are weeping and wailing for him along the streets. And Jesus says, don't cry for me. Like, weep for your, like, think of your, your, your own lives. He's thinking about them. He's constantly thinking of the other while he is suffering on the cross. <laughs> people say, people mock him, and then one of the criminals next to him says, remember me when, I come into your, when you come into your kingdom. He says, oh, you'll be with me in paradise. Suffering and glory. He's thinking about others. He's full of love. Or we could say power and love. Suffering, glory, power, love. This is the way of Jesus. It's the suffering glory of the Messiah. His kingdom is marked out by that because he's the king. And he shows us that that's the way that his kingdom works. It's a kingdom of suffering glory because he's a king of suffering glory. And so it should be no surprise whatsoever for all who choose to follow him and make him their Lord that they are caught up and implicated in the suffering glory of Messiah Jesus too. This is the, a snapshot again from the conversation with James and John. Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? They replied, we are able. <laughs> Silly boys. Then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. Do you understand? They think they can grasp and seize something by being sneaky. Let's get in now before he's crowned and see if we can share the power and the glory somehow. Jesus says, you don't know what you're on about. Oh yeah, we do. Okay. Well, you will share in my glory. But it's a, a suffering glory, James and John. If you want in on the glory, the only way is to be in on the suffering. You cannot have it any other way. I mean, how many other ways can I put this to you? There's no resurrection life without a crucifixion death. There's another way. Dying to self in order that the life of Christ might be in you. Sharing in his crucifixion that you also may share in the resurrection. All of these ways. It's the suffering glory of Messiah Jesus. And these words somehow, these words of the Lord's Prayer about kingdom, power, and glory somehow speak right to the heart of our Christian anxiety to change the world for Jesus. <laughs> Maybe it would be great, wouldn't it? It would be amazing if we could change the world for Jesus. It would be great if we could sort of just make it all happen, if we could find the right prayer if some worship leader somewhere in a bedroom in Grand Rapids could come up with the perfect melody with those four chords that are available to Christian worship leaders. And the, and the phrase that kind of somehow brings together like the love of Jesus and my heart and my life and somehow that would be the key. And if, if people would just sing it, then it would all change everything. Or, or if only we could get a Christian prime minister <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who would want that gig as a Christian? If we've had a Christian prime minister, make of that what you will. 
we're a mixed bag of motives. This is the point. Even our highest ambitions for changing the world, our highest ambitions for personal piety and godliness are tainted by human ambitions for power and glory. All of them. See, I could bet you anything that even your ambition to change and be a godly person has at least a tiny seed in there of wanting to look more godly in front of other people too. Right? How can I bet you that? Because you're a human being. And there is no such thing as a perfect human being other than Jesus Christ. We're all tainted with that, let me sit with you at your left and your right. Let me get glory without sharing in the suffering. Let me, let me, let me look good. Let me be powerful. Let me be, let me be dramatic and pious and godly. And the only way to that is, to, is actually weakness, vulnerability, suffering, glory, because that's, that's the way of Jesus. And following Jesus will indeed mean being identified with him in his glory, the Messiah's glory, by sharing his sufferings. If you want to change the world for Jesus, it will mean sharing in his sufferings. It can't mean anything else. It can't. But here's the thing, you don't change the world anyway. There's one victory that overcomes the world, and that's the cross. Christ's work is unique. What he doesn't actually need, really, is a bunch of other people who think that they are the Messiah. (laughs) That's the last thing that Jesus needs. What he needs is a bunch of people who say, you are the Messiah, and I follow you. And the way that the world will be transformed is when the church realizes that the world will be changed by a people who embody the selfless love and the suffering glory of the Messiah. But because we're addicted to power and we're addicted to glory and we're addicted to spectacular and we're addicted to big things that are shiny, that's why we love things like X Factor and stuff like that on TV because it looks, oh, glory and lights and Hollywood. But the ways of Jesus are not like that. One day he will appear and universally he will be acclaimed as Lord of all. Universally he will be acclaimed as the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. The Lamb who was slain for forgiveness of sins to conquer over sin and death and Satan. So in the meantime... We pray for the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours forever. It means that the kingdom, power, and glory are eternally cross-shaped. It means to pray this prayer, whether this phrase or all of it, we're implicating ourselves in a cross-shaped life and putting to death a life of grasping and seizing and self-serving. And it means that however we think about mission, it must also be cross-shaped because the cross defines the kingdom and the king. We're going to sing a song together now that just focuses, focuses us in on this again. Jesus, 
glory revealed at the cross. As we do, the kids are going to join us again and then we're going to break bread together. And I'll say a few words before we do that, but Paul, if you'd like to come and I don't know whether the kids need to be told that now's the time or if they will hear the music and troop in at that moment. But let's stand up together and sing this song. So as we come to the table this morning, 
first of all, we're being gathered to this table. This is the love of Jesus beckoning us. The Lord's table is not primarily our response to Jesus. It is Jesus who gathers us and calls us to himself. It's God's work and not ours. And as we eat and drink this morning at the Lord's table, we are identifying ourselves with a crucified and risen king and with his kingdom. We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And there's a gap between the death and until he comes. And the way of life for the people of the Messiah is modeled by the Messiah himself. So again, we implicate ourselves. And the question I want you to ask yourself as you draw close and come to the table to eat and drink is, are you prepared to be shaped by this king and his kingdom? Are you willing to let go of other means of achieving power and glory? Are you willing to un tighten your hands and let go of agendas? Are you willing to fall into the arms of Messiah Jesus again? We thank you for this meal, Jesus. We thank you for the continuity that it relates to your miraculous feeding of people in the wilderness. It relates to your final meal with your disciples. It relates to an, a, a room with Cleopas and his friend. Oh God, open our eyes that we might know and understand you, that we might discern you, and that we might discern your ways and walk in them and be shaped by them. Jesus, if it's really true that we are what we eat, God, we want to gorge ourselves on you then this morning. We want to learn how to take you deep into ourselves. We want to learn to understand and not just to know, but to have a depth of communion with you. To honor and glorify you. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.